But we're going to be in Acts 21 today. And uh, last week we saw you know, a, a sad goodbye between the Ephesian elders and Paul. And today we see Paul in, in scriptures when Paul knew the will of God and had a spirit-given determination to fulfill the will of God despite well-meaning Christians, well-meaning brothers and sisters in his circle telling him not to listen to what God has called him to do. Not They were trying to deter him to do God's will. And as many of you know, I'm an avid reader, and one thing I love to read is church history. It's one of the most interesting topics you can read about, for me anyways. Um, uh, and uh, so what, these verses, as I was reading them, I couldn't help but connect them in my mind to a man named Martin Luther. Most of you have probably heard Martin Luther, and if you've come from the Catholic Church, you might even hate Martin Luther, but that's okay. Uh, on April 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms, not the Diet of Worms as it's spelt, it's the Diet of Worms, it's German. The emperor had forbidden the sale of all reformers' books, at this time it was, it was mostly his books, and ordered them to be seized. And this put Luther's life uh, at, at a great risk, he was risked to die, and one of his great friends by the name of George had sent him word through a special, special message encouraging and, and almost telling Luther not to go to Worms because he would suffer the fate of John Huss. And Luther responded to him saying, although John Huss was burned about a hundred and so years before Luther was alive, there's a man named John Huss and he was burned for Protestant thought. And he was burned alive and he said, although John Huss was burned, the truth did not burn with him. And Christ still lives. And then he sent this now famous message back to his friend George. I shall go to Worms, though there are many devils, as there are tiles on the roofs there. So Luther did go. And thousands came out. He actually had armed guards traveling with him because his life was that uh, threat. And thousands came out and he stood before high-ranking Roman officials in all their splendor. And this would have been intimidating for anybody. Uh, and Luther stood there. And their first meeting after it concluded, uh, you know, they are calling Luther to recant his teachings, to, to deny them. And Luther requested a night to pray. And you got to remember... This isn't like how we live today. The Roman Catholic Church had control over everything, including claims to your salvation. That's what people believe. So for you to be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church was for you to go to hell. So of course, Luther is like, oh my word, I got to meditate on this and, and pray about this. And he prayed and he came to the next meeting on April 18th at 1521. They had to choose a larger hall and that hall was still so crowded. There was no fire marshals at this time that even the emperor could barely sit down. It was packed in there. And then they became a, a famous dialogue between a Catholic theologian named Jerwan Eck questioning Luther, try, uh, uh, questioning on how he could be the only only one out of all these theologians who understand the Bible. They were trying to make Luther out to be crazy, claiming that the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church taught was the one that Jesus instituted himself that was confirmed by the apostles and was confirmed by the councils, although it was a false gospel. And to all of that and more, here's Luther's response. This is, oh, is this on? You might have to change today. Sorry about that. Or are you not clicked on it? Okay, just go to the next slide. Sorry about that. Luther said, since then, 
Your majesty and your lordship desires a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience, here it is, is captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And he sat down. And this is considered one of the greatest moments in modern history of the world. And how did Martin Luther come to such heroics and boldness? Standing alone, what it seemed like against the whole world. Remember, the Pope had kings in his pocket. He was standing against the whole world. And he, he came to this conclusion by examining God's word. While a monk in Wittenberg, Germany, and the subsequent encounters that he had leading up to his teaching that the just, the Christians, those who are saved by Jesus shall live by faith. He knew that it was God's will for him to go to Worms and to declare the truth of the word regardless of the consequences. And furthermore, Martin Luther did God's will. That's what I'm pulling at here. And this is what set him apart from all the other ordinary men of his day. He actually did God's will. He didn't just know it, he did it. And the Apostle Paul, too, was a man who knew what God's will was and did God's will, which is this instance in our verses today is to go to Jerusalem to minister and encourage the churches in Jerusalem, though this service would bring him in bonds and afflictions. Not everyone agrees on how to interpret chapter 21. Some might uh, uh, title this section Paul's Bravery. And others might call it Paul's mistake, arguing that Paul went against the Spirit's direction when he went to Jerusalem. And certainly, Paul's a human. He's just like us. He's, no, he's not a super saint. There's no such thing we can do and be just as bold as the Apostle Paul. He made mistakes, but here's what I believe uh, is these verses are giving us, is that Paul is a great example for Christian believers today on how to follow God's will, even when... The world, and even when good-meaning Christian brothers and sisters are telling you something different. Because some of us are wrestling with crucial or thorny decisions today. We've brought them here today. You're seeking God's face today on them. And we may wonder, what is God's will for our life? Or maybe we know God's will, but we're not sure if we can do it. And this story of Paul's struggle offers you and I as everyday Christians, it gives us helpful insights on how not to be derailed in following God's direction for us. So if you remember, Paul had just experienced a tearful farewell with the Ephesians elders. It was tearful because he knew there was suffering ahead of him, and he's told them that they'll never see his face again. And then the Holy Spirit told Paul that imprisonment and affliction were awaiting him in Jerusalem. This was no surprise for the Apostle Paul. It was certainly a wrenching goodbye, but yet Paul proceeded towards his difficult day with destiny, not reluctantly, but he sprinted to meet it. And like Luther, he gave God's plan higher priority than anything or anyone else. Such joyful abandonment to the divine will would go neither unchallenged nor unrewarded. So with that in mind, let's jump into our verse today. I'll give it a shot again. Okay, it's working. So verses one to three show us Paul's 
hurried journey. Let's read together. And when we had parted from them, he set sail, and we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patra. And having found a ship uh, crossing Phoenicia, uh, we went aboard and set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So first we see right away Marinda's travel log information again. He's going as quick as possible, but his journey is filled with many time-consuming stops because he's on a cargo ship and they have to go into all the ports. And he's just trying to get to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that pain lied ahead, but he still sprinted towards trusting God despite the consequences. And once entire, Paul came under some unexpected pressure to alter his his plans. Let's keep reading in verse 4, which says, Having some sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and although the Spirit, sorry, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Uh, and then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. So what we're seeing is pressure on Paul to turn from God's will. Paul was on a, uh, on, on a layover due to Tyre being a major port city in his day. And instead of just spending time in the ship and resting, he sought out the disciples in this area. He was determined to reach his destination. But what I find interesting is that even though he was, had such determination and committed to reach uh, Jerusalem, he was deterred by relationship. And I think it's interesting when we contrast this with last week's message when he uh, intentionally did not go into Ephesus because he knew relationship would hold him there too long. But here, he allowed himself to be turned by relationship. And, and because these relationships were invaluable to the Apostle Paul. And relationships with Christian brothers and sisters within our church should be invaluable to us. There is something special about a faith family. The depths of spiritual relationship with somebody is invaluable. We can't put a, a, a price tag on it. it should, and if you've ever had true community with people, if you've ever had a soul level uh, relationship with somebody, you understand what's being said here. You crave this. You long for it. You desire to be with these people. It's healthy. And this is why we, we promote things like life groups because they're so critically important because life group is a place where you can come and be known by other people and where you can know other people and you can share your prayer requests. You can talk with each other. You can hold each other accountable and encourage each other with the word of God. So this would have been a wonderful meeting for the Apostle Paul, a bonding time with these believers, but there was only one wrinkle. The disciples through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to follow through with going to Jerusalem, even though Paul was clearly told by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Because back in chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, Paul tells us that he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And this has given him a spirit-driven determination that we have been pulling the thread out for the last couple of weeks. But now we have these faithful Christians, these faithful brothers and sisters who are saying the exact opposite. What's happening? Is the spirit contradicting itself? 
Is the Spirit saying one thing to someone else and someone, something to some, uh, someone else and, and watching confusion unroll? But that's not the case. These Christians did not announce a new or contradictory revelation of the Spirit. They received the proper guidance from the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to suffer. Now the problem is, is that they took the Spirit's leading a little bit further where they did not have liberty to and said, hey Paul, don't go, you're going to suffer. Because they loved Paul. They weren't trying to be malicious or angry with Paul or hurt Paul. They loved Paul and they would, they would hate to see Paul suffer. And they knew if Paul were to suffer, then they wouldn't have Paul anymore. So out of human emotion, they were trying to deter Paul from going. But Paul was committed to his destination. He knew the voice of God. He was likely confused. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But he, the sheep, know my voice. And he took, yeah, I know I'm going to suffer. And I have to keep going. And he knew this would lead him into tribulation. And we too face the same distraction in our lives. And a lot of times it comes from well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters, because we think a lot with our emotions rather than what God is telling us to do. And we, and we start to compute, well, if they're going to suffer, I don't want them to suffer. That can't be the will of God. But I'll flesh that out a little bit more near the end of the sermon. But Paul must have experienced a confusing an emotional mix. He's already missing his new friends in Christ, but he's probably also a little bit relieved to get away from their negative messages. You know, you love somebody, but you're like, wow, you're a little too negative for me today. <laughs> so let's just take some distance. He's probably relieved, but that relief did not last long because he, became, he came under more pressure in Caesarea. And let's pick up reading in verse 7. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at it did not change. There we go. We arrived at Plumaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver his hand into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we all heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So after a day's layover and uh, uh, with his companions, he finally arrives in Caesarea, which was the port city of Jerusalem. Paul could now enter into Jerusalem anytime he wished, but he was waiting until the right time, which was Pentecost. And this isn't the first time that we heard of this guy named Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts. He was one of the seven found faithful. He's considered with the other six, the first deacons of the church, the first lead servants of the church. If you remember back in Acts 6, when the Hellenistic Jews complained that they were being left out, their widows and whatnot, these were the deacons, the servants of the church. And then we hear of Philip the Evangelist again in Acts 8 of how the Lord used him. Here's the big story that you all know with the Ethiopian, uh, uh, and he brought about salvation. Hey, there's water. What is resisting me from baptizing you? And the Ethiopian came to faith through this faithful man. But then Philip just kind of disappears. He disappears off the pages of Scripture. We don't hear from him. There's about a gap of 30 years. And then when Philip pops back on the scene, what do we find him doing? 
What do we find Paul, what does Paul find him doing? We find that he's being faithful to his calling, even though he wasn't in the spotlight. And, and I wanted to pull this out because it was inspiring to me as I reflect on it. Could, if we fast forward 30 years from now, could the same be said about me and you? Now, if you're in your 90s, you're going to be faithful no matter what because you'll be in heaven. But um, if we fast forward 30 years from now or whatever, just take whatever time, are you and I still going to be faithful to what God has called us to do, even though we might not be in the spotlight? And I wanted to encourage that to you because that's my prayer for us as Christians, that we would continue on faithfully, even if we're not being seen, even if we're not getting a pat on the back, because we know that the one person who sees it all always sees us. Amen? But back to the text, we see that Philip was blessed with four daughters and these daughters prophesied. And I think it's helpful that we just kind of pop out of the text for a second and define some terms of what's going on because prophecy can be a very confusing subject because in, the church, in early church history, prophecy took two forms that had two meanings. And we find actually both those meanings in this one text, which is really helpful. So the two forms of prophecy, the first one is prophecy can function as evangelism, as preaching the gospel, as sharing the gospel with someone else. Why that was called prophecy is because what is this? It's not a trick question. What is this? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. And when I preach the Word of God to you, or when you read the Word of God to someone else or share it to someone else, you are prophesying the Word of God. Okay, so it's evangelism. It's reading and preaching the word of God. And this is likely what the four daughters were practicing. They were, because their father was Philip the evangelist. And they were likely evangelizing with their father. Okay, they were being used by God to reach the lost, prophesying the word of God to them. The second form of prophecy is literal prediction of future events. The kind of stuff that we know we might get a little weirded out by sometimes. And this is clearly seen in the character of Agabus. Agabus had prophesied of Paul's future imprisonment in Jerusalem and the Jews and his eventual handing over to the Gentiles. He then took, this is common in Old Testament stuff, he took Paul's belt and he made a dramatic play. He tied both his hands and feet and said, this I want to see how he did that, by the way. But he's like, this is how the man, the, the man who owns this belt is going to be traded, treated. And so Agabus, he's a, a known prophet. His prophetic voice had already benefited the early church. If you flip back to chapter 11, verse 28, you can read about that. And now he has also confirmed the same future for Paul that the Christians entire had said and that he has been told by the Holy Spirit. So after Agabus' dramatic prophecy, we see everyone around Paul begin pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. And remember, this isn't God's warning him not to go. This was human nature struggling to wrap their minds around God's purpose in suffering that laid ahead. So the pressure was upon Paul. It was unbearable. You, you just think about it. For months, perhaps even years, he's been having vague prophecies about future persecution about the, about this pain and the suffering that's going to come. And then he has this hurtful time with the Ephesian elders saying goodbye. And he had this heart-tugging experience entire. And then Agabus just put the cherry on top of everything with this dramatic prophecy. And then everyone around him, and pick up on words here. When you read the Bible, it's important to pay attention to words. It's saying, we, we, we were begging him not to go. Who's we? That includes Luke. 
his faithful servant, his number two, one of his good companions. Luke was even saying, hey man, don't go to Jerusalem. That's a high-ranking guy in his ranks. And he's saying to don't go to Jerusalem. And finally, with all of that, the Apostle Paul finally cried out and answered, what are you doing? What are you doing? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. What Paul's doing here is he's acknowledging that they're tearing him apart. They're putting him into an internal war. Even Satan and his forces couldn't do to Paul what these Christians were doing to him. He wasn't bothered by the attacks of Satan, but when the people he loved, whose words he held in high esteem, begin to turn on him, it hurts. Even though it was from a loving position. But even in the midst of all this pain and confusion, Thankfully, Paul found the strength in Christ to carry on where the Lord was leading him, regardless of the cost. So let's pick up reading in verse 14, which says, and, it's, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So now he's entered into Jerusalem, and this concludes the third missionary journey of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, missionary general of the apostolic church. He was refusing to compromise because of his coming affliction, and he was going to Jerusalem, though there would be as many devils as tiles on the roof. Which brings us to this question. Why the pressure? Why was there so much pressure? Why did Paul encounter such pressure from his close friends to go against what he knew to be the will of God? And first we see that Paul's friend commits kind of the first common mistake that we make as Christians, and that is the inclination to be quick to know God's will for someone else. We're bad for that. And we need to avoid making snap judgments or offering spiritual formulas that work for us and pigeonhole everyone who talks to us through those things. It's important to talk to others to discern God's will, but when someone comes and talks to you about that, your first reaction shouldn't be, hey, here's like four points you should try. Yeah, let's pray about that right now. Let's meditate together on what God's will is for your life and then let's commit to submitting to that not just jumping to, uh, to a formula. The second thing is uh, these well-meaning believers are trying to make God's will conform with their preconceptions. We love to do that. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, this is their mindset. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. And if Paul suffers and dies, then we are going to be de deprived of his wonderful ministry. Clearly, that can't be the will of God. Because God wouldn't want that to happen to Paul. And this speaks so powerfully against our Western Canadian understanding, our mindset, our culture. As Herbert Hendon says, it says, It is no accident that the present time, the do dominant trends in psychoanalysis are the rediscovery of narcissism. The society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relations to this question. What am I getting out of it? What can this relationship give to me? And this is what those Christians were guilty of. Well, we just want Paul because he gives us stuff. He makes us feel good. He teaches the word so well. Give us Paul. So we see this similar trend still today in the church. 
We hear things like, well, God just wants me happy. If I'm not happy, then I'm not in God's will, clearly. God doesn't want me to suffer or have any pain. Say that to the thousands and thousands of faithful saints who suffered over the years. Therefore, I'm not in God's will if there's pain. We can learn something revolutionary from Paul here. Paul was fully aware of his impending suffering that would befall him. And he did not hesitate to continue on, to push on to the mission. Because Paul's chief concern in life was not comfort, was not safety, and was not even a long life. His chief purpose, rather, was centered on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever it would cost him. And God summons all his people to trust perfectly in his will as we see in Paul. And again, this is not unattainable. Paul is not some super saint. Indeed, the suffering that Paul faced in his earthly life brought about much glory to God. Paul's suffering also bore tremendous fruit as a lot of times his suffering resulted in advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. That is why we should aim to be obedient like Paul was. Because in the Christian worldview, the question should be not why does suffering happen to me, but rather how can I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of my suffering? Instead of just jumping to prayers like, Lord, remove this burden from me. Lord, remove this trial from me. Lord, remove these pains from me. Rather, let's pray, God, what are you trying to teach me? How can I bring glory and honor to you in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this question? How can you use me in the midst of this? We shouldn't jump so quick to why am I suffering, but rather how can I glorify God in my suffering? Oswald Chambers expresses this well, the perfect approach. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whatever it means, suffering or not. Meaning we don't just walk across the, the road because we know that guy's going to punch us in the face and just accept it because we're Christians. No, but if God calls us to talk to that guy and then we get punched in the face, that's a whole different story and scenario. And yes, that does happen. <laughs> so, but we must not make our understanding of God's, uh, uh, God's guidance as conditional to our own happiness or our sense of completeness. We are not to share the gospel because we enjoy it, but because it is God's will. We should not serve as deacons or as elders or as, as servants uh, 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 serving in different areas in the church because we're going to try to get some fulfillment or check off a box, but rather because God has called you to do it. We, not, we should not serve our church in any way in the various ministries because we find fulfillment in it, but rather because God has led you. That should be the basis. And here's the amazing part about it. If you love God and you desire to do his will, and that's your motive, then those things will become joyous to you, and those things will become fulfilling to you. But if fulfilling and joyous is your foundation, then the moment it becomes strenuous or someone says, questions your leadership decision or complains to you, I'm done. I'm done because it's not fulfilling anymore. But rather when that happens, you remind yourself, who called me to do this? God has called me to do this. And I do this unto the Lord and no one else. Thirdly, in attempting to turn Paul away from Jerusalem, his friends demonstrate it that uh, 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 their spiritual focus was more horizontal than vertical. Their love and loyalty to Paul was commendable, but their motives Though noble, they were short-sighted. 
These Christians were not seeing God's ultimate purpose. They were looking out for Paul's good and the good of the church maybe, but not God's good. And to Paul's credit, he withstood it all. He remained steadfast. And that's the question we have. How was he able to withstand the pressure that was on him? Paul was victorious because he lived a life the same way that Jesus lived his life. In fact, him going to Jerusalem is remarkably parallel to Christ. We see the plot of the Jews. We see him being handed over to the Gentiles. We see a triple prediction of coming suffering. We see his steadfast determination and a trusting to surrender to God's will, even if it meant pain. Paul held firmly to God's revealed will, and he did his best, to the best of his ability, to do it. He had a long-standing inward constraint to go to Jerusalem and suffer if need be. And that went all the way back to his conversion. If you remember when Christ, when Christ saved him, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering has been, the, has been the trademark of Paul's ministry from the beginning. Paul refused to be deterred from God's will. And further, Paul even though he refused to be, that's the first step, is just refusing to be deterred from God's will. The second step is that he just wasn't a people pleaser. Galatians 1.10 says, For now I am seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> Imagine putting that as the first thing you see walking into the church, right? We're here for Christ, Amen not to serve or please man. Paul played for an audience of one, and so should we. And atop of firmly holding to God's will and not being a people pleaser, Paul wholeheartedly trusted in the sovereignty of God. We must, as Christians, have a high view of God's sovereignty and not diminish that. He believed God knew what he was doing when he sent Paul to sure persecution in Jerusalem. As Oswald Chamber goes on to say in his wonderful devotional, My Utmost for His Highness, Highest, he says, God plants his saints in the most useless places. And we say, I should be here because I'm so useful. And Jesus never estimated his life by the standard of greatness. God puts his people where, where they will glorify him. And we are not capable of judging where that is. So if you've ever questioned, why am I in Drumheller? I don't understand. You're here because you're called to be here to glorify God. Amen. How does that change everywhere you live? You're where you're at because God has planted you here. Even if it seems useless, it's not. You're here to glorify God. So Paul withstood the pressures and followed God's will. And may we all do the same. So as I close, I'm going to close with a couple of practical steps of discerning God's will. We all kind of know the four counsels, and if you don't, that's okay. This is the classic example that we discern God's will through God's word. Come on, let's go to his word. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit who lives inside each and every one of us, if you're a believer, and conscience. He does it through conscience and others, other Christian brothers and sisters. And taken all together, this often reveals the will of God. And Christians who have a heart that is saved, that is spirit-filled, sanctified, and submitted to God can know his will. It's not a mystery. Christians who really want to do God's will will do it. It's just that simple. And in seeking God's will and doing it, we find a few practical reminders. And the first one is that we should seek good advisors. We should be discerning on who we ask to be our advisors. 
you know, if you're asking the guy who has never picked up his Bible or prayed a day in his life, maybe he's not the best guy for spiritual things, right? So find someone who's running hard after God and ask them to advise you on things. This is good. The other, the second step is to spend time with God regularly. Don't just go to God when life is hard. Go to God all the time. It's like a certain young woman I read about. She was trying to discern God's will for a marriage proposal. And instead of just saying yes or no, she took a week off with her Bible. And she prayed to God and discerned if she should marry this man or not. She was a wise woman. The third step is that God, God's will may not be what you want. I think you should go in that with first and foremost. Like God's will probably won't line up with what you want your will to line up with. And, 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 and then we have to be willing to submit and surrender to his will. And it's hard at times. Many of us are like the little girl who wrote a letter to her grandma. She was thanking her grandma for the present. She said, I've, I've always wanted a pin cushion, just not that much. Right? And that's humorous in children, but it's sad when it's God's children speaking to their father. Amen? Amen? It's sad when we speak to God that way, when we don't do his will. And lastly, if we know God's will, we just must do it. For most of us, the problem is not knowing God's will, but it's obeying God's will. There were undoubtedly others in Luther's day who knew God's will, who knew the Catholic Church was corrupted, who knew that change and reformation had to come. But Martin Luther was the one who actually just did something. And that's why he changed history, because he did it. And if you know you should take an ethical stand with people at your work, then do it. If God, is, if God is wanting you to admit that you've done some wrong, that you've said some lies, that you stretched the truth, and, and, and you've even just doubled down on those lies, but now you have time to correct those, do it. If God has called you to give, if God has called you to preach, if God has called you to volunteer, if God has called you to sell everything and go to the mission field, don't settle for merely just knowing God's will. Do it. And the strength will come from within and it will be for his glory. The final words as we close is from Richard Baxter, a great Puritan theologian. He said, Lord, what you will, where you will, and when, you, and when thou will. And may that be our prayer. Amen.